Genesis 36. And let me kind of remind you, if you've forgotten what we're doing here, we're going through an overview of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And the, we've kind of divided that into five main sections. The first 11 chapters of Genesis deal with the nations, how God brings the nations into existence and their proliferation and how those come into being. And then verses, uh, chapters 12 through 50 of Genesis are uh, the patriarchs, how God begins to work through Abraham and his descendants to provide for this, this promised seed, the Messiah. And we begin to look at that in Genesis 12, uh, Genesis chapters 12 through 50. And then we come to a third section of the Pentateuch called the Exodus that is found in Exodus and deals with Israel leaving Egypt. And then Leviticus and Numbers deal with the wanderings in the wilderness. And then the book of Deuteronomy deals with the last section, the preparation for the people as they go into the promised land or prepare to enter the promised land. And so that's kind of where we are overall in the book of Genesis or in the, in the Pentateuch. And we right now are in Genesis. We're going to be in 36 this morning. But let me kind of remind you where we are as we get to Genesis 36. Genesis 32 we had just left the story of Jacob wrestling with God and that, that cry of faith that he has there, I believe, and how he receives the blessing from God, the blessing that only God can give. Then in Genesis 33, we have Jacob and Esau's relationship by God's grace restored. And then we come into chapter 34 of Genesis and we begin to look more at the descendants of Jacob. And we encounter this horrific story in Genesis 34 of the rape of his daughter, Dinah, the assault on her. And then we read not only of that brutal attack, but the brutal response by her brothers, Simeon and Levi. Not only do they take vengeance upon the person who perpetrated this act, but they kill every male that lives in that city. And at the end of chapter 34, Jacob says, what have you guys done? You've made me like a, a stench to the inhabitants of the land. And so as we look at these chapters and look at Jacob's sons, there are some questions we have about the worthiness of these individuals to be recipients of this covenant blessing. Chapter 35, a couple important things happen. Jacob fulfills the promise that he made in chapter 28 to come and return to Bethel and worship God there. And God blesses Jacob and reaffirms his covenant blessing upon him and affirms his new name of Israel. Then in the rest of the chapter, we encounter the death of Rachel as she gives birth to Benjamin. So Jacob's wife, Rachel, dies, and his father, Isaac, dies in Genesis 35 as well. There's one other thing that we're going to come back to later in the book of Genesis. Just also, just one verse here that's, that's very disturbing, another example of the concern we have about Jacob's sons. But verse 22 tells us that Israel's son Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And perhaps this was Reuben's attempt to assert his dominance over the family. But whatever the case, another just kind of heinous act here in the book of Genesis. And we're concerned about Jacob or Israel's sons, these 12 sons of his. There's some grave concerns we have about the future of God's promise through them. But then we come to Genesis 36 that we're looking at this morning. And it's one of everyone's favorite sections of scripture, a genealogy, right? 
I was talking to the kids last night. I said, okay, kids, I really need you to, like, you know, text your friends and uh, kind of talk up how excited you are about the sermon tomorrow, about how it's a genealogy, and the kids were not all that receptive uh, to that idea. But, uh, you know, Doug is is here with us, and and Doug told me, he said, you know, I know that the people at your church, I know how much they they love God's word, and they're going to be excited to see how this relates to them. And I said, yeah, totally. That's totally them. No, we are. We are excited about God's word, and I, I do trust that's true. That that uh, this is this is not a passage that's just easy to read through very quickly and say, oh, I, I see how that applies. But I think as we spend uh, some time in Genesis 36, in fact, what's better than one sermon on a genealogy? About two. We're going to spend this week and next week looking uh, not just at the genealogy, but at the application of the genealogy as we think about God's blessing to the nations. So, in all seriousness, just some really exciting things in God's Word as we encounter Genesis 36. I'm going to read portions of it, uh, and if I mess up names, um, you're hearing it wrong. I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, there are some hard names in here. In fact, I was listening to it. This someone read this last night, and they were. Uh, pronouncing the same name different ways. So I'm not totally sure on some of these, but we're going to to do the best we can as we read God's word faithfully here. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter. It wouldn't all make sense to you yet, perhaps. And so we're going to read some, just some excerpts here as we begin to look at this genealogy of the descendants of Esau. And so if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, beginning in verse 1. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. In fact, notice how many times he makes us aware that Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basimeth, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. And Ada bore to Esau Eliphaz, Basimoth bore Rule, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into the, a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. Then verse 9 talks about his sons. It says, These are the generations, sons and grandsons, of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. And he talks about the names of his sons and grandsons. Then you come to verse 15, talks about the chiefs. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, and he lists those chiefs. Then verse 20 describes the inhabitants of the land. These are not the descendants of Esau, but these were people who were already there. Verse 20, these are the sons of Seir, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, and begins to list those descendants, 20 through verse 30, and the chiefs of them. Then verse 31 begins to tell us about the kings. These are again the descendants of Esau. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being Dinhaba, and goes on and lists those kings. Then verse 40. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling places by their names. The chiefs Timnah, Alva, 
Jathith, Aholabama, Elah, Penan, Kanaz, Tin, Timan, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. You may be seated. May God encourage us this morning through his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, this morning we are very grateful to you for the gift of your son Jesus, the, the promise to see the Messiah, and our prayer would be that each person would be in him uh, through faith in him alone for their salvation. Father, we uh, think this morning of uh, several things that are on our hearts. We think of our, our teens who have come back from youth camp, and we would ask for continued grace in their lives. Pray that you would cause them to know you and to love you and have their faith in your son Jesus alone. And we pray that you would help uh, protect them. We pray this next week for our uh, young children in vacation Bible camp. We pray for the workers and give them joy in you as they uh, proceed to to minister. And we just uh, would ask that you would help us to be Good stewards of the, the, the many kids that you've placed in our church and kids in our community who are going to be here. We would ask that their hearts would be soft to the good news of your son Jesus, that they would love you and, and trust in him, protect them from evil. And as we think of evil this morning, Father, we're uh, mindful of the still unfolding uh, horrific events in Orlando. Uh, we don't fully fathom the, the nature of evil and uh, just the atrocities that have been committed there. And so we would ask just for your grace in uh, the situation. We pray for uh, families who are devastated this morning. We pray for communities who are impacted by this. And we pray for your gospel uh, to go into very dark places and uh, proclaim the good news of your son Jesus to those uh, who are in, in, in dark, dark places today. We pray for our ministry of gospel proclamation. We think of the the Guatemala team and and ask for a continued grace for them. We thank you for the the Beakleys who are here and uh, thank you for their their ministry to us and for us and ultimately for you. And we would ask for a continued fruitfulness in the lives of our missionaries as they proclaim the good news of your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. As we look at Genesis 36, there is a problem in the church that I believe this passage helps us to address. And that that problem is our failure to live out the Great Commission. The Great Commission, of course, refers to Jesus' words at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. At the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus, as he is talking to his disciples, uh, tells them that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And then he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe All that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Jesus' great commission to his disciples. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that we fail in our implementation of the great commission in, in some significant ways. Why do we do that? 
Well, one reason, I think, is that we sometimes confuse the nature of the Great Commission. In other words, we're not quite clear on what Jesus has instructed us to do. Sometimes we confuse discipling the nations with befriending the nations. I mean, think about what discipling the nations means. What that means is that as we encounter people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, who haven't placed their faith in him, we communicate to them the the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We say, okay, here's who you are, and here's what it means to be separated from God, and here's why you are separated from God, and here's who Jesus is, and here's how he can save you, and you need to respond to this message by believing in him, by trusting in him. And now, as you do that, as you recognize Jesus as Lord and Savior, here's what a life lived in obedience to him looks like. That's, that's what we're doing. We're trying to disciple the nations to encourage them to place their trust in Jesus and live lives in accordance with him being their, their Lord and their Savior. And instead of taking that message to the nations and to our, our neighbors, to our friends, to our family members, instead sometimes we think that the Great Commission just means kind of like being friends with people and making them kind of think nice things about Christians. And so maybe we want our, our neighbors to be in relationship with us. We think, okay, my goal is just to get kind of people to, to come in and sit in a chair at church. Or I want to do some nice things for people from other nations. And as I do social things or as I do nice things, as I care for them physically, then that's discipling the nations. And those things aren't bad. But what I want to suggest to you this morning is that's not... What it means to disciple, that's not the essence of discipleship. That's not the essence of fulfilling the Great Commission. God's call on us is to be passionate about communicating to the lost their need to be in a relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then what a lifetime of that looks like. So one of the reasons that I think we fail on that is a lack of understanding that that's what God has called us to do. And that's concerning. But another reason that we fail in the Great Commission that I think is even perhaps more concerning is that we just don't really care about the nations. We really just don't care. We've got our church. We've got our friends. We've got a good thing going on here. We've got our family. And so when it comes to people who don't know God, we don't care. The idea that there are people in the world who aren't worshiping God, who don't know him, who haven't come into relationship with him through faith in his son Jesus, that just simply doesn't really enter into our thinking about our daily lives. Genesis 36, particularly when we understand Genesis 36 in the the context of scripture, should change our thinking about the nations and about our responsibility to them and about our passion for the Great Commission. This message, I think, is hitting at a good time in the life of our church. You know, it's been several months where we've been thinking about our missions ministry or, or even longer than that. And, and yet, at the same time, just over the last few weeks, there have been some significant differences in our missions ministry. Many of you know, uh, at the beginning of our church life, we were part of the Bethany Fellowship of Churches. And so, Bethany Baptist very graciously brought us in and allowed us to be a part of their, their missions ministry. And there was a lot of joy in that relationship. And it allowed a, a young, immature church to be a part of a vibrant, mature missions ministry for the first eight years or so of our church's life. And, and, and now, though, we, we've recognized that there are some things at Bethany Community Church we need to do differently. There's some areas in which we need to grow. As we thought about our missions ministry over the last year, we realized that we need to have a closer relationship with the people 
that we're sending out in, our, in the name of Bethany Community Church, in the name of Jesus, to proclaim the gospel. We need to have a, a deeper relationship with them. And, and perhaps even more important than that, we at Bethany Community Church need to have a, a personal sense of responsibility to be engaged in the task of missions, the joyful ministry of missions. We at Bethany Community Church need to be passionate about. In fact, even though I'm excited about where we are in our missions ministry, and I know Dave Robinson and the rest of the team that are working on that, Dave is the elder who's overseeing that, even though we're excited about where we are, we recognize this, that for this to be successful in a, in a godly way, in a God-glorifying way, that's how I'm defining success, for our missions ministry to be successful as we enter this new phase of missions at Bethany Community Church, it requires us not just to go about the task of missions, but it requires us to develop a passion for the Great Commission, to have a passion to see God worshipped by those who are not currently worshiping God. For us to be successful in this endeavor, that's what it's going to require, and that's what I want us to think about this week and and next. What I want us to, to grasp as we look at Genesis 36 is that God's people love worship and are passionate about bringing others into worship of God, particularly people from different ethnic and cultural groups in themselves. God's people, here's what I want you to see that the next, this week and next, God's people love worship of God and they want to see others worship God. That needs to be something that I, I hope over this week and next we have a greater passion for as we look at what's taking place in Genesis 36. And here's what I want to do as we talk about that. I want us to first of all, Look at the story of the Edomites in Genesis 36. And then I want us to kind of keep on going out. I want us to look at Genesis 36 and the Edomites. Then I want us to see the Edomites, these descendants of Esau, in the context of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Then I want us to see the Edomites in the Old Testament. And then I want us to see the Edomites in all of Scripture and in the New Testament. And what I want us to do then is to talk about the Edomites and God's plan of blessing for the nations and some principles there. We are going to get nowhere near all that uh, covered this morning. Really what we're going to try to do is, is cover a large part of this, this first section, seeing the Edomites in these different parts of Scripture. And I, I hope this is exciting and encouraging to you as we look at this text this morning. So let's begin here. The Edomites in Genesis 36. And I know the temptation when you're reading through your Bible and you come to a section dealing with the genealogies, I know the temptation is to think, oh boy, now a bunch of names and to kind of skim through it rather quickly. Let me encourage you to do the best that you can in trying to understand why God has inserted the things in scripture that he has and where he's put them. And, you know, none of us have a chapter in the Bible devoted to us. I don't think any of you do. I certainly don't. And yet here we see in Genesis 36 that God in his holy word has decided to spend an entire chapter talking about Esau's descendants. Let's outline it here a little bit. Let's kind of go through what takes place in each section. And remember in Genesis 25 that Rebekah is told there are two nations within her, Esau and, and Jacob. And here we see the fulfillment of that prophecy. 
In verses 1 through 5, we see Esau's wives and his sons. And if you look at this list of his wives and his three wives here and compare it with Genesis 26 and 28, you'll see some differences in the names that they give his wives. And there are many theories as to why that is the case. Some speculate maybe he had additional wives or maybe they're just repeating some common names. I kind of think that what's taking place here is what takes place often in Scripture where the same person has uh, several names that they're known by. Esau, for example, here. Jacob has two names, and we encounter this in, in other places in Scripture. In fact, recently uh, I was with some friends, and we were talking about our different family members, and we were writing out our genealogies to kind of help us understand how everyone was related to everyone. And as I was writing out my genealogy, there were several times I'd make little notes. Okay, well, this person, I know their name is here, but, but um, you know, this is what happened to them, and this is why this line looks a little bit funny. Uh, and then, you know, I, I had, there's like four different James Vernons in our family, and so someone we call James, someone we call Jimmy, someone we call Rocky. I mean, there's all sorts of different names for the same people. So that's some of what I think is taking place here. There's some names that may have been common names, and so they use different names in Genesis 36 and Genesis 26 and 28. That's verses 1 through 5. Then look at, look at verses 6 through 8. What's taking place there? Well, there's movement Esau leaves his family, and the neat thing is it doesn't appear to be departure because of relational discord. It says he moves to land away from his brother Jacob because, verse 7, their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. So it's not that there was relational disharmony. It was the fact that God had given them both such abundant possessions. They couldn't dwell in the same place. And it says the land of their sojournings could not support them because of livestock. And so Esau... Esau's Edom settles in the hill country of Seir, and that is a region that is to the south of the Dead Sea, south and east, and some, sometimes part of it may be in the, the southwest part of, uh, near, in relationship to the Dead Sea. That's verses 6 through 8. Then look at verses 9 through 14. In verses 9 through 14, it begins, these are the generations, and that's a, a phrase we see used multiple times throughout the book of Genesis. These are the generations, the the sons of Esau, and it mentions in verses 9 through 14, five sons from three wives and then ten grandsons. That's verses 9 through 14. Three wives, five sons, ten grandsons. Then you have verses 15 through 19. And look at what it says at the beginning of verse 15. It says, these are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. And then as it lists the names, and you compare the names in verses 15 through 19 with the names in verses 9 through 14, you'll see that they're essentially the same. And what's happened is Esau and his descendants have come into this land south of the Dead Sea, and they've begun to live there. They begin to increase in number, and they develop into this this tribal system or a confederacy, it it seems, of tribes. And the different tribes are named after these sons and grandsons. There's 14 of them here. There's one name that doesn't appear in the list of sons and grandsons. Maybe that's a great-grandson, but whatever the case, what we see developing here is these 14 chiefs, a, a confederacy of tribes, and them gaining prominence. Then you come to verses 20 through 30. What happens in verses 20 through 30? Well, now you have a new group of people mentioned. And whenever Esau and his descendants came into the land of Seir, there were some people who were already living there, and that's these Horites. 
Seir the Horite and the inhabitants of the land. And it mentions them and talks about some of the, the, the things that they did and their children. And that they were a, a culture and a society. They had chiefs. Deuteronomy 2 tells us that the Horites lived in Seir, but the people of Esau dispossessed them, destroyed them from before them, and settled in their place. And talks about how God gave it to them in verse 12 and 22 of Deuteronomy 2. God gave Esau and his descendants this land, and the people they dispossessed weren't weaklings. There were people with a culture and society and structure as well. And Esau comes in and dispossesses them, intermarries with some of them. Others of them leave, others of them are, are conquered. Then you have verses 31 through 39 and it mentions back, goes back to Esau's descendants and talks about these kings. So here's what we've had. We've had Esau and his wives. They have sons. The sons have grandsons. They develop into these 14 tribes. And then these tribes dispossess the people who are already there, the Horites. And then you have not just this loose confederation of, of tribes, you have kings, Look at verse 31. It says, These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So this monarchy system develops before the Israelites developed a monarchy. And as you read through these names carefully, you'll notice something interesting. These kings don't seem to be related to one another. In other words, there's not a hereditary succession of kings. It's not like, you have dad, and then his son becomes king, and then his son becomes king. And then it's some sort of elective selection of the kings, perhaps. And talks about where they're from geographically. And so you have these different tribes, and these people living in different places within this land of Seir. And these Edomites select kings to reign over them, to reign over this confederation of tribes. And those names are mentioned there, and perhaps they represent some, some dynasties What's the point? Verses 40 through, 40, 40 through 43, by the way, listen, list the chiefs again. There's a fulfillment of God's promise of two nations. Now, what do we learn? We learn that these Edomites are people of value to God. They're people with a culture, with abilities. For the Israeli, for the, the mindset of the people that Moses is writing to, there is a temptation, we see this in Deuteronomy as well, to, to think of themselves as not just the center of God's plan, but the end of God's plan, that God exists for the Israelites' benefit and glory. And so that's the mindset that Moses is dealing with. And in Genesis 36, we see an, an antidote to that mindset. Look, uh, God isn't just concerned with the Israelites, God is concerned with Esau's descendants as well. Yeah, it's Jacob that he's chosen, and yet at the same time, God has a concern for Esau and his descendants, and God is mindful of them. And if it's true that he has saved and elected Abraham and his descendants so that they would be a blessing to the nations, and the Edomites are becoming a nation, what does that mean? It means that God is concerned with the Edomites. Genesis 36, as we think about the Edomites in Genesis 36, we see a people of value, a powerful people, a people with culture and abilities, a people that God himself is concerned with. God has value that he places upon them, and he's gracious toward them. That's what we see in Genesis 36. Well, let's expand a little bit. Let's expand a little bit. What about the Edomites in the Pentateuch? Where do we encounter the Edomites again? Well, you can turn, if you want, uh, over to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 20. And the Israelites have been in Egypt, 
And now they're leaving Egypt. They've wandered in the wilderness and they're trying to return to the promised land. And they need to get to the promised land. The shortest way is to go through the country of Edom. It says in Numbers 20, verse 14, And Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel, You know all the hardship that we've met. He talks about the hardship they've gone through with the Gentiles. And it says, uh, here we are, this is verse 16, Here we are in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your territory. Now we're just right here on the edge. Please, he says in verse 17, let us pass through your land. We'll not pass through field or vineyard. We won't drink water from a well. We'll go along the king's highway. We'll not turn aside to the right hand or the left hand until we have passed through your territory. But Edom says, no, you shall not pass through lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel try again. Look, we'll go by the highway. And if we drink of your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay you for it. Just let us pass. On foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and a strong force. Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory. So Israel turned away from him. So here's this relationship that God desires to be harmonious. And we see even as Israel begins to make their way back into the promised land, it's not the case. Interestingly enough, as you go to the last book in the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 2... Moses recounts that detour they had to take. In fact, the detour was hundreds of miles out of their way. They had to go far south and come back around, and they could have just gone right through to the the plains of Moab, but they have to go all the way around. Moses is recounting that, and some of them could have remembered the the length of that journey. Oh, man, I remember having it all the way around. What's interesting is he recounts it. He, He doesn't mention, he doesn't mention why they had to do that. He doesn't talk about Edom. He just says, as he's talking about what happened in Deuteronomy 2, 4 through 8, it talks about the, um, how we had to turn away from our brothers, the people of Esau. But he doesn't mention why. And as you come to Deuteronomy 23, he talks about the Edomites. And he says, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he's your brother. Children born to them in the third generation, he says in verse 8, may enter into the assembly of the Lord. What does that mean? It means at the very beginning... God is revealing to the story of the Edomites that his plan goes beyond ethnic Israel. God has a plan for other people to enter into worship of God. God has a plan for the Edomites to worship him. The Israelites are being taught in the Pentateuch the worth of the Edomites. Let me talk here for a few minutes about another obstacle to fulfillment of the Great Commission. And that is something called ethnocentrism. What is is ethnocentrism? We we all know what racism is, right? Or kind of know what racism is. Racism is whenever I I see a person who looks different than me, maybe it's a a person of a different ethnicity, and I look at that person and I have some some thoughts about that, that ethnic group, and I say, okay, that ethnic group has these characteristics, and I take those characteristics, usually negative characteristics when we're talking about racism, and I project them onto that individual. I say, okay, that, these characteristics are true of that person because they are that color, or they're from that culture. That's racist. That's racism. And I, I would hope all of us would say, yeah, I don't, I don't want to be racist. I'm not a racist. We would, we would disavow ourselves from that sin, Ethnocentrism is a little bit more subtle. The word ethnocentrism comes first of all from the word ethnos. It means like a, a people group, means a, a group, 
an ethnicity, a, a, a smaller group of people. And uh, it means that we're kind of centered around that group. And a, a person who's ethnocentric says, okay, I'm part of this group. This is, the, this is my identity. I'm in this group. And uh, I'm going to judge all other groups by, by my culture. I'm going to judge all other cultures by the culture in which I'm a part of, when the, the culture that I'm identifying with. And so um, I'm, I'm going to base other Values. I'm going to compare the values of other cultures and ethnicities with the values of my culture and ethnicity. And if they differ, I'm going to say that, that mine are right and others are wrong. My culture is the standard. My, and if your culture is a threat to the preservation of my culture, I'm going to view your culture as evil. I was talking with this about Doug this week, and he sent me an article that he had written. And you know, if you know much about South Africa, that South Africa has had to deal with some very difficult things related to ethnocentrism and and racism. And Doug wrote this article about legislating to to deal with racism and ethnocentrism. And he he wrote this. I think it's helpful, as we see it in the South African context. It says, ethnocentrism is an ugly blight. This is what Doug writes. It's an ugly blight worldwide, one of the sinful consequences of the fall. When the first man and woman said no to God, it became a lot easier for all of us than to say me and mine and no to everyone else. The quest for autonomy doesn't like a crowd. And the best way to defeat the crowd is to isolate oneself from it and to despise it. So we isolate ourselves and we despise the other. This is manifested in different ways and kind of mentions some of those within the South African context. The self-centered love of the self-absorbed individual as well as that of the self-absorbed group leaves little room for multi-ethnic harmony. The sense of superiority does not a happy society make. When it comes to the ugliness of ethnocentrism, we won't stop it until we have a heart change. Heart change, Doug writes, through, through the gospel. Now, I want to be careful here. I want to apply it in our cultural context, and I want to kind of thread a very fine theological and applicational needle. I don't want to say something and and be off just a little bit. You say, well, yeah, he's off there, so the whole thing's ridiculous. Just listen carefully to what I'm saying. If I don't say it exactly right, at least listen to, to what you believe God would have us understand about ethnocentrism. You and I are part of a culture that is changing in profound ways right now continues to change in profound ways we are changing both morally and culturally and there's a sense of of disequilibrium i think for many of us as we we think about these radical changes that our country is going through our culture And, and you and i are right to oppose some of these transformations It is right and good to say, look, this is what the gospel says about how one is to live one's life and what the gospel says we are to value. And as our our society begins to demand that we accept as reality that which is fictitious, according to God's word, we continue to say, no, no, we're not going to be a part of that. We're not going to transform along with that. And, And yet at the same time, there are some cultural transformations that I want us to challenge ourselves to think about biblically. It is certainly normal and even good to appreciate your culture, to appreciate the language that you speak, to appreciate the things that God has given you in your culture. That is fine and and good even. And yet, an appreciation for culture can quickly 
turn into the sin of ethnocentrism. It's subtle and it's quick and it's absolutely contrary to the gospel. As we begin to see our culture itself as, as a good and every threats to our culture and its preservation as evil, that's where ethnocentrism really gets us off track. In other words, let me say it this way. If just from my perspective as, as who I am culturally, if, if I begin to say my objective in life is the preservation of the white English-speaking culture, I am in for a world of heartache. Not only because there's really nothing I can do to preserve the, the white English-speaking culture that used to dominate our, our country. I, I'm not going to be able to preserve that, and so it's a, it's a losing battle, even if it was a good one to fight. But ultimately, in eternity, I've lost it anyway. If my goal is to preserve the, the white English-speaking culture, I'm going to have a rather miserable eternity. But if my passion is the Great Commission, it changes how I view the transformations culturally in our country. If I say, you know what, my desire, my passion is not the preservation of of some culture or subset. I'm not concerned about the preservation of the white English-speaking culture, but my passion is, is the glory of God and the worship by God of a diverse group of people, then it changes how I view the presence of people who look and talk and value things that are different than what I value or the way I talk or how I look. I don't know, I don't know how all this applies politically, right? I don't know what our immigration policies should be. I don't know how to balance protecting people's safety in a country with immigration, all those things. But, but, but I do know this, biblically. As I think about other people, I need to make sure that my motivation is a God-glorifying motivation. That my desire is not some preservation of something that's, that's contrary to God but, or based upon the values of my culture, but that my motivation is, is God and his glory and the worship of God. I need to make sure that I, I, I exude compassion for those who are without Christ. And no matter what position I take on various issues that our country is facing broadly, personally, I must be passionate about seeing other people become worshipers of God. And if I'm going to oppose the entrance of people from other cultures into my world, I'd better have a very fully developed and passionate response of reaching them other ways. In other words, if I'm going to be a a person who passionately opposes other people from other cultures coming into my culture, I'd better, as a believer, have a passionate plan for reaching them somehow. Maybe I'm just a a really lazy person, (laughs) but our cultural transformation to me from the perspective of a believer seems like a rather good thing for gospel proclamation. God envisions in Genesis 36, he shows the Israelites that he loves the Edomites. And in the Pentateuch, God envisions a time when there will be a place for participation in worship for the Edomites, worship as part of the people of God. That's the heartbeat of God from the beginning. The people of Israel didn't understand it. We must grasp and embrace it passionately. Let's broaden our context real quickly, just the Edomites in the Old Testament, and then we'll stop kind of there. The Edomites are enemies. They're enemies of, of God's people 
after the Pentateuch, Edom comes to symbolize enemies of Israel, and there's this antagonistic relationship with them. Saul fights against them. David conquers them. Then they rebel. They um, revolt and set up their own kingdom in the days of Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat. Then uh, you continue to see them the people of Israel at odds with one another. Eventually, they fall into the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks. The prophets recognize them as those who are enemies of God. It says in Amos 1.11, they, they're, they're people who had wrath against Israel forever. Obadiah talks, uh, the whole book of Obadiah, the prophet, is about the Edomites and how they rejoiced whenever Jake, the people of Israel were carried into captivity, that the people of the southern kingdom were carried into captivity. They, they rejoiced over that. It says that you stood aloft on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered the gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. And so, first of all, in the Old Testament, we see the Edomites were enemies of the people of God. Secondly, we see that the Edomites are going to be dealt with by God. Obadiah talks about the day of the Lord upon the nations. As you have done, he says to the Edomites, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. God is going to judge the Edomites. We see this in the book of Amos as well. God is going to deal with them and judge them. But, and here's, here's the amazing part. Here's the amazing part. God also envisions a time and when the descendants of Esau, those whom he's judged in their sin, he also envisions a future in which they become worshipers of him even still he has that vision don't have time to go through but isaiah 60 after he's talked about the judgments upon the nations he talks about the nations entering into worship of god you shall see and be radiant your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you the wealth of nations shall come to you there's going to be this worship of god by all the nations amos chapter 9 talks about this in this day i will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who are called by my name. God envisions a time by his grace here in Amos where the people are going to submit themselves to the reign of the Messiah and worship God. And in fact, we'll talk about this next week. When you come to the New Testament, you find the Edomites again. The same passage is quoted in Acts 15, as it talks about the Gentiles becoming worshipers of God. Genesis 36 is a powerful argument against ethnocentrism to the people of Israel. Yes, people of Israel, Moses is saying, God is working through you to provide this, this promised seed, but the seed does not exist for your glory. And God, we see even here in Genesis 36, God has a plan to bring all the nations into worship of his name. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I, if we are going to share the heartbeat of God, if we are going to practice the Great Commission as he's called us to do, if we are to fulfill that most fundamental task for which we were created to worship God through, and to, to manifest that worship through discipleship, we must be passionate about seeing the nations come to him and worship him. And next week we'll be continuing to talk about that and talk about how practically we respond with what God desires us to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this, this, this nugget of scripture that tells us that you are a God who loves all the nations, even those who have been your enemies. And Father, may we have in a time of a culture being radically transformed, people from different cultures hating us and hating you, 
Father, give us, give us the desire to love them. We think even today about potentially what, what could have, it seems like it was an act of terrorism. Uh, we, Lord, recognize that your gospel is sufficient even in this, and that even in this you would cause, uh, call us to love our enemies, to see those who do not know you or love you, people who hate you now, become worshipers of you for your glory. We pray that they would do so in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.